This morning, we're going to be looking at the book of Ruth. If you want to be turning there in your Bibles this morning, in your copy of God's Word. We spent last Sunday morning looking at Joshua, seeing there that God works in unexpected ways. And we said that that includes winning with improbable plans, calling for uncommon commitment, and it also included working through unlikely people. And we see that last theme continuing in this story we're looking at this morning. The book of Joshua continued after Jericho with and after Ai and the people of God, they continued the conquest of the promised land. Uh, the land was divided among the tribes and the people renewed their covenant with the Lord. Um, the next book then in our Bibles, as we go through and read them in the order that the pages of our Bible are there, is the book of Judges, which is actually where we'll be next Sunday. Um, Judges, though, opens with the conquest of the land. It's still incomplete. Um, the people are at times obeying and being obedient to the Lord and being faithful to Him. And at other times, we see the people's obedience faltering. And we see this cycle that begins to play out in the book of Judges, where the people would sin against God and they would kind of fall away from their covenant promises, their covenant commitments to Him. And at that point, consequences would come. And inevitably, they would find themselves oppressed by the other nations around them there in Canaan. And once they were oppressed under the weight of that oppression, though we would hear the people of God as we read the book of Judges, we hear them crying out. And they would recognize the weight of their sin and they would cry out to God for help. And as we saw a few weeks ago, God is a God who hears and delivers his people. And so God would hear them and he would raise up a judge to bring deliverance. And then again, the cycle would start over. They would sin again and fall into this same pattern over and over again. That's what's going on in the book of Judges. And we're told as the book of Ruth opens that that's when this book is set, the time of Judges. It's the very first thing we learn as we read Ruth in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So we don't know exactly when in the history of Judges this takes place, but we know that it's in this period where God's people are in this cycle of sin and oppression and then repentance and God coming again and again to deliver his people. And we know there was a famine going on in the land. We know that much. So we know when the story is set, but then what about the where? The story begins with a family, we're told, being from Bethlehem, a, a town in Judah. And they travel from there to a country named Moab, presumably because of the famine in their homeland. Moab was this perpetual foil to Israel, kind of just a constant presence in their lives kind of a constant adversary for them. They were loaded, located just across the Dead Sea from where Israel was, where the promised land was. The origination of the people, the country of Moab, actually is recorded for us in Genesis 19, where Moab was born to the daughter of Lot under some extremely disturbing and appalling circumstances. And so the, even just the existence of Moab and the Moabites points to the brokenness and the depravity that sin brings into the world. And so that's where the story of Ruth is set. It's set both at a time when Israel is in this cycle of sin and rebellion against God. And it's also set in Moab, a place and a people that point to the alienation that sin brings between a people and God. The Moabites were known for their idolatrous worship of false gods. And that's where Elimelech and Naomi travel with their sons, Malan and Chilion to find relief from the famine in their homeland. So 
we kind of begin reading the story. We'll just start this morning in Ruth at the very beginning, um, in verse 3, actually, where we see things really beginning to get going in the narrative there. So Ruth chapter 1, verse 3 says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Right at the beginning, this story opens in tragedy. Naomi's story, it's one of utter devastation. She's in this foreign land. She's far from home. She's trying to escape famine. And now she is here, a widow without children in a culture that left her without any means to support herself and to provide for herself financially. And verse six says that then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so she's in the fields of Moab and she just gets word. She hears a glimmer of hope in an otherwise hopeless situation. We don't even know how. We don't know who brought this word to her. We just know that somehow she got word that the Lord had visited his people and that the famine was over, that they had food. And so Naomi gives us a good indication of what we should do when we hear hopeful news. She starts moving toward hope. She gets up and starts to return to the promised land, back to her homeland. Her daughters-in-law, they're going with her until we read that Naomi turns to them and she tells them, no, you don't need to come with me. You just need to return back to your own mothers, return back to your homes. And as Naomi talks to her daughters-in-law, we hear her sincere love and her desire that they would really just have a good life and that they would have what is best for them. She's concerned that she wouldn't be able to give them or offer them the life that they deserve. And so Naomi is grieving. She's feeling alone. She's feeling bitter. And she doesn't want her daughters-in-law to experience the same heartbreak, the same tragedy that she has experienced in her life. And so both Ruth and Orpah, though, we're told are weeping by the time Naomi gets finished talking, but they're both still ready. They're both wanting to return with her to Judah and return with Naomi, but she just continues to plead until finally Orpah, it says, kisses Naomi and leaves. But it says Ruth clings to her, and Naomi and Ruth had this powerful exchange in Ruth chapter 1, verse 15. It says, she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Naomi made it clear to Ruth that the obstacles they were gonna face were gonna be Great. She'd been clear about what to expect, but Ruth persists in her commitment to Naomi and also to the Lord. And so whatever comes, Ruth says, I'm committed. I'm in. She says she's with Naomi and she is with Naomi's God. Right? And I love how relatable verse 18 is because as they're having this exchange, Naomi finally, it says, just sees that Ruth was determined to go. And so it says she just said no more. 
She'd said all she had to say. She'd said all that she could think to argue with Ruth at this point. And she could see Ruth was not going to change her mind. Nothing that she could say was going to change her mind. So why even try? She just stops with it and they go on together. Verse 19 says, the two of them went on till they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. As chapter one ends, we find that both Naomi, Naomi and Ruth, they're in Bethlehem. They're in the promised land. They're among the people of God, but we find both of them in need. After all that had happened in her life, Naomi was understandably bitter. So bitter that she would say, bitter might as well be my name. Just call me bitter because I went away from this place full and I've come back empty. Her husband, her sons were lost. And then there was Ruth, who was not an Israelite by birth, but a Moabite. And so she's here in Judah as an outsider, a foreigner from a nation known for its sin, not among the chosen people of God. Her husband is deceased. She's not among the people of God who have received the promises of God. And so she also finds herself in need. Ruth's story, as we read it this morning, we see it's often looked at as a love story, right? which it is. It kind of has like that Hallmark movie feel to it if we look through it. But it's more than that. Right? It's more than just a love story. Right? It's a story of redemption. And it points us to the greater story of redemption that we see playing out in the scriptures and that we see playing out in our own lives. Ruth's story shows us that in a broken world, God provides a redeemer. And so that story of redemption includes three elements we're going to see in the story of Ruth this morning. Redemption begins with the plan. It begins with the plan. To be more specific, redemption has to start with a plan that fits the problem at hand. For Ruth and for Naomi, the problems were numerous, and we've already explored them a little bit this morning as we kind of walked through the first chapter of Ruth. But both Naomi and Ruth, they've experienced this unimaginable loss leading Naomi to this place of protracted bitterness and anger, and then leading Ruth just to this place of uncertainty and separation from everything familiar to her. She just doesn't have this sense of belonging. And just as there's great emphasis on the bitterness of Naomi, which we already read, chapter two shows us what Ruth per perceived to be her greatest problem. Her greatest problem is Boaz is guaranteeing her protection uh, in Ruth chapter two, look at her, how she responds in verse 10. It says, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Ruth saw herself as an outsider in Judah, as a stranger to the people and to the promises of God. And so not only are both women in the vulnerable vulnerable position of just being widows in a culture that made 
where women were dependent upon men in general, but Ruth is also in this vulnerable position of being a foreigner, an outsider, a stranger, making her dependent on the generosity of others as well. And so Naomi and Ruth, they find themselves, both of them separated from God. Both of them find themselves in need of redemption, but in very different ways. Naomi separated from God by the bitterness in her heart and Ruth by just the place of her birth. But we see ultimately that God's plan of redemption fit them both in what would admittedly seem like an extremely foreign concept to us today. God laid out a plan in Deuteronomy 25 for how his people were to react in a situation like the one that Naomi and Ruth found themselves in. Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 and 6 say, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And so in this way, God had a plan that the wife who was widowed was protected both from potential abuse and neglect and economic disaster, but also that the name of her deceased husband would continue on. This was God's plan for redemption, for saving people from disaster in this very situation that we find Ruth in. At least it was part of his plan. The question here in Ruth is, though, with both of Naomi's sons now deceased, there was no brother, who would step into this obligation? Who would be the kinsman redeemer that the scriptures point to? As the story unfolds, we quickly begin to wonder as we see Boaz coming through the fields if he might be the one who would do just that. After all, in what we know is a period of intermittent faithfulness to the Lord on the behalf of Israel, we're introduced to Boaz right from the get-go as someone who is faithful, as someone who trusts the Lord and obeys his word. We see him greeting his workers with just a blessing and an acknowledgement of God's presence. And then He's not just allowing Ruth, a widow and a foreigner, to glean from the edges of his fields, but he insists on it. He's going above and beyond what the law required him to do. You could also point to God's instructions to his people elsewhere in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus. We see instructions there that Boaz is following, instructions he's exceeding as he provides for Ruth and provides for Naomi the food that they need. Would Boaz be the one through whom God's plan of redemption unfolds? By the time we come to chapter three, it begins to become clear that Boaz is aware. He's aware of what we read back in Deuteronomy about how God would redeem. Naomi, knowing that Boaz was winnowing barley at the threshing floor, also seems to understand the plan as she lays out a plan of her own. Naomi instructs Ruth to go to the threshing floor and to seek Boaz out. And so we're told that Boaz was asleep when Ruth came and uncovered his feet. And waking at midnight, Boaz, it says, was startled, as you would be if you woke up in the middle of the night and had a stranger laying at your feet. Boaz was startled to find Ruth laying there, and in his startled state, he asked Ruth, and she answers in verse 9 with, I am Ruth your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Naomi knew the plan. Ruth knew the plan. She's basically here in the middle of the night proposing marriage to Boaz. 
Question is, did Boaz see it the same way? Was he gonna be the one who would step up in the way of redemption? Verse 12 answers that question for us though. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, Boaz says. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Boaz was willing, even eager to redeem Ruth and to take her as his wife. But he knew there was another relative that was closer to Elimelech than he was. And so the law and the custom said that that person should be the one to redeem Ruth. And so Ruth returns to Naomi. She's eager to hear all about what happens. They share together what went on at the threshing floor. And then they both just wait to see how the plan of redemption would unfold. The problems of Naomi and Ruth were first met with the plan of redemption. God's plan from well before this event ever took place, this tragedy ever struck their lives. But then we see another element in the story of redemption, and that is the cost of redemption. As chapter four of Ruth opens, it seems as if as readers of the story, we kind of just know at this point where this is headed, right? As I said, it kind of has that Hallmark movie feel, maybe a little bit as we read it, we kind of begin to see, okay, I know what's going to happen here. But there remains the question, the tension that was raised even by Boaz in chapter three, would this closer, would this unnamed relative who's closer be the one who would marry and redeem Ruth, right? Or would it be Boaz? Well, we'll just let the story speak for itself in Ruth chapter four, beginning in verse one, it says this, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. But at first it seems as if this closer relative, as if there's gonna be a twist in the story as this, this other redeemer is willing to redeem Naomi and Ruth until he recognizes the cost. Because we go on in verse five, it says, Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. This other man is eager to acquire the land that belonged to Elimelech. He's eager to increase his own holdings and to expand his own wealth. He's ready to go. He's ready to do this. But then Boaz shares the rest of the story. The law and the custom also said that he wasn't just acquiring this plot of land, but that he was acquiring an obligation to his dead relative, both to protect and to provide for Ruth and also to produce an heir for the line of Elimelech. In other words, this wasn't 
an opportunity to build upon his own wealth and name and fortune and inheritance because the land would ultimately be inherited by the heirs of Elimelech. This other redeemer seems to be concerned that his own inheritance even would be diminished if he was just distracted by taking on these other responsibilities and obligations that come with redemption. And so he says to Boaz, take my right of redemption for yourself. So we look through this passage, redemption is talked about in terms of buying and selling, buying the land that belonged to Elimelech. And verse 7 on describes a business transaction with the other redeemer and Boaz exchanging sandals as was apparently the custom at that time, although not by the time the book was written down. But redemption is depicted as buying back the land that once belonged to Elimelech and taking on the responsibility of perpetuating the name of Elimelech, who was left with no heirs. It's clear from the other redeemer's reaction that redemption had a cost, right? There was a cost that he was not willing to pay or even to risk paying. He saw the cost of redemption and he forfeited his right to redeem. But Boaz, right, Boaz knew all the same information. He saw the same costs. He saw the same benefits and he looked and said, this is a price that I'm ready to pay. And so he bought the land and took Ruth to be his wife and he committed himself to perpetuating the name of Elimelech that he would have an heir to his land and to his name. The story of redemption includes the plan to meet the problems of Ruth and Naomi, but the plan would have been nothing more than that just a good plan if it hadn't been that Boaz was willing and ready to pay the cost. And since he was willing and ready to pay the cost, though, that brings us to the third element in the story of redemption, and that is the reversal. The reversal. A perfect plan, a willing redeemer are not all there is to redemption. It also includes a transformation, a shift. It's there in the word redemption. The prefix meaning again or back, right? Redemption is about regaining something, regaining possession of something that was lost. And here, Boaz is willing to redeem Ruth, and that actually brings about a reversal even for Naomi as well. Think back to the beginning of the story. As Ruth and Naomi returned to Bethlehem and to Judah, Ruth's biggest problem was from her own mouth that she was a foreigner, right? That she was not among the people of God, and she was therefore outside the promises of God. But her marriage to Boaz brought her in. Ruth 4.13 says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. Redemption turned Ruth from an outsider, a foreigner, to an insider. It brought her into the family, brought her among the people of God. The reversal that redemption brought was one of relationship for Ruth, both with God and with his people. The book actually ends by pointing us to the descendants that Ruth and Boaz would have, from whom David would eventually be born. Ruth is no longer on the outside looking in at God's promises and looking in at God's people. She's now right in the middle of what God was doing in the world, of what God was doing through his people. Redemption 
brings a great reversal for Ruth. But it also brought a great reversal for Naomi. Remember where we found Naomi at the end of chapter one. She wasn't outside the people of God, but she was in this place of bitterness and anger after all that had happened to the point that it became just the heart of her identity, became who she was. We heard her telling Ruth and Orpah not to return with her because she had nothing to offer them and she could do nothing for them. And you can hear the brokenness and the pain in her words. But as the story unfolds, we can begin to sense a change happening in the heart of Naomi as well. As Ruth returned from the fields of Boaz, in chapter 2, we begin to see Naomi's heart changing. In verse 18 of Ruth chapter 2, it says, She took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. As Ruth shared with Naomi, we can almost kind of see her begin to connect the dots of what's going on in their lives. We can see her begin to realize through all of her bitterness and through all the tragedy that she'd been through, we hear her start proclaiming the kindness of the Lord instead of how bitterly she'd been treated by the Lord. Naomi's brokenness and bitterness is being renewed. Her heart is being restored as she has purpose and finds joy. And from there, we can see Naomi kind of come to life, beginning to instruct Ruth and to give her advice along the way about how to proceed until the women of the town are heard declaring this great reversal in Ruth chapter four, verse 15, saying to Naomi, he shall be a restorer. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Naomi had told him to call her bitter, right? but here they are celebrating with her the birth of her grandson, the birth of Ruth's sons. When it looked like everything had been lost, it looked like calamity was all that God had for Naomi. God's kindness was poured out on her in a way that the people around her couldn't help but testify Her life was no longer a story of God's bitterness. It was no longer a story of unrelenting disaster. People around her took notice that her story was one of God's faithfulness and kindness and provision. The story of redemption includes the plan, the cost, and the reversal. And as Boaz steps up to redeem Ruth and Naomi, the one theme that we see more clearly than any other, is that God provides a redeemer. God provides a redeemer. Words related to redemption are used 23 times in just the four short chapters of Ruth's story. It is the story of redemption. 
pointing to the bigger story of redemption playing out in the scriptures. It's the story of one family that points to what God is doing to redeem all the families of the earth. Love how Paul Tripp describes the story of Ruth and how it fits in the unbroken plan of God. Here are these words that he writes about this story. He says, why is it a story about redemption? Because this is God taking one more step in delivering his promise. Because out of this couple would come David. And out of David would come the Messiah, Jesus. This is God through this alien woman, this stranger, making sure that the promised Messiah would actually come. It confronts us again with the wild ways that God accomplishes his work of grace. God uses unexpected people and unexpected instruments to propel the mission. This is God protecting his promises, making sure that they'll happen, creating the line, the genealogy out of which Jesus, the Redeemer, will come. Yes, Boaz is a picture of redemption, but he's not the Redeemer. But he's in the line of the Redeemer because God makes sure it will happen. The physical history of Scripture is important because it's that history in which God works to make sure that his promises actually do take place for his people. In the genealogy of Jesus, in Matthew chapter one, there are four women. One of those is Rahab, who we saw last week. And another one is Ruth, who we see this week. Pointing to how God works in unexpected ways through unlikely people to bring about his promises and to secure redemption for his people. In the story of our redeemer, Jesus, we see the same elements that we see here in the story of Ruth's redemption. Because like Ruth and Naomi, our story starts with our need for a redeemer. Ephesians 2, 11 and 12 says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Because of our sin against God, each of us finds ourselves or have found ourselves at one time separated from God, strangers to the promises of God and having no hope in this world. Each of us in this room and every person we will ever meet faces the same problem. Sin separates us from a holy God. The problem we cannot solve. But the story of redemption in Jesus Christ includes the plan, the cost, and the reversal we need. 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21 point to the plan for Jesus to redeem us. It says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Peter says, to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God sent Jesus at just the moment in history that he did for the sake of those of us who would believe in him. That's you and that's me. If we've trusted Jesus, redemption includes the plan of our redemption, but it also includes the cost because before that, Peter would say there in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, if you call on him as father who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
Ephesians 2.13 puts it in similar terms. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The cost of our redemption was nothing less than the life of Jesus. The price he willingly paid on the cross. His blood shed for our sins. Redemption, it includes the plan, it includes the cost. And so it also should include the reversal. As with Ruth, there's a reversal in our relationship with God and with one another. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 says, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Jesus paid the price of our redemption so that we are brought near to God. And that as we come near to God, we are brought near to one another. We were dead in our sins, but now we're made alive. And so our redemption, it's not just the breaking down of the dividing walls between us and a holy God, but it's also the breaking down of the walls that divide us from one another, whatever they might be. Redemption brings reconciliation with God and it brings us together as the people of God, a dwelling place for God. And that isn't just abstract theology, right? Redemption brings about reversal in our thoughts and in our actions and in our lives. First Peter 1.13 and following say, therefore, preparing your minds for action, and being so reminded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. The redeemed life includes a reversal in the way we think, and in the way we talk. It's not just a modification of our behavior though, but it's this deep and abiding life change that begins in our minds and then begins in our hearts, but then works its way out into everything that we do and into the way that we relate to one another and the way that we relate to the world around us. Because the redeemed mind walks and talks in a way that protects the unity that Christ has purchased for us. It's our love for one another that's what distinguishes us and sets us apart from the world that makes us holy. That's what Jesus said is that people would know that we're his disciples by our love for one another. The kind of love that caused Ruth to follow Naomi back to Judah. The kind of love that caused Naomi to advise Ruth and to care for her and to help her, the kind of love that caused Boaz to willingly pay the cost of redemption, to love each other with the kind of love that points others to the love that Jesus has shown for us, that he would shed his own blood and lay down his life for our redemption so that those of us who were far from God and separated from God in our sins can be brought near to him. It's the story of redemption.
It's a story of God's love for us, right? Maybe it really is a love story after all. So we think about that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you this morning. We praise you today, God, for the redemption that you have provided for us through Jesus Christ. Bring those who were without hope in our sins near through the blood of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness toward us. So we look at the story of Ruth, Lord, the story of redemption, Lord, of how you have been at work in the world, Lord. We know that you continue to work, Lord, providing a redeemer for us. And so we pray today that you would help us to remember the cost of our redemption, Lord, and to walk in a way that is reflective of that cost, Lord, to treat one another, to treat those outside our church family, to treat those that we come into contact with every single day in a way that points to the love that you've shown to us. So we pray today that you would help us as we come to this time of response to be faithful, to be who you've called us to be and to respond to as you've called us to respond. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory.